This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-Pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-foot by 10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale, in-store and online at cabelas.com. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel LaRue, your host, and so happy to have you with us. This episode happened pretty organically. I had Devin Carpertian and Jared Weiss on to do the Atlantic Division off-season interview, season preview, and after Devin had to go, Jared and I just kept on talking, and what started as a just a conversation between two guys talking about basketball, we ended up going on to some interesting topics and wanted to make it into a podcast. So, talk about a lot of different things. It's Brooke Lopez, Yao Ming, kind of big man foot stuff, different developing teams, the Sixers, the Magic, and his Celtics, and just topics in in between, and for those of you who don't know Jared, he's been on the show before, he's the, he writes for Celtics blog, he does a lot of work for CLNS Radio in Boston, and he hosts the Garden Report postgame show, so his analysis of the Celtics towards the end of the podcast in particular, for those of you who are interested, is notable, though I think the whole thing was a lot of fun. Conversation runs about 40 minutes, and it's a little bit different than some of the other ones because it starts abruptly because it was a part of another conversation. And there are a couple of cuts because what happened was this originally started as an off-the-record conversation that became a podcast, and of course he approved it. But there were a few things that I was uncomfortable including for that reason. So there are a couple jumps that are jumps there, but I feel like it's easy enough to follow. So... Hope you enjoy it. I had a lot of fun doing it. I always like talking with Jared. And as I said, it runs about 40 minutes. Thanks for listening. I also think that this is a big proving year for Brooke Lopez because if he can provide some defensive value and really play a part in the Nets having a successful season, that could establish him as one of those building block centers, you know, maybe even filling the gap that it seems like Roy Hibbert has fallen down of the, the young guy who he might not have it all together, but you'd really like to have him on your team. And for him, the timing of that, it really couldn't be better if he can do it. 
Well, the thing is, Brooke Lopez is one of these guys that he's been hurt enough in his career that you're kind of you're ready to close a book on him if he has another serious injury. We're looking at that with Derrick Rose, where you, if he has one more, if he misses another year, you're going to basically put him in the Greg Oden, Andrew Bynum bag now, where you're not expecting him to play again. It's great if he does play again. And Lopez, he's been hurt so many times in his career that he's kind of he's kind of in that category now. And I worry that because you you look at him, you look at what he was doing before he got hurt. He was turning into an All NBA center. He was finally matching his brother and his ability near the rim. And he's always had great great high post skill and good low post skill. He kind of all put it together, and he was an unstoppable force. And he was the guy that was the centerpiece of that team that was going to be a really, really good title contending team. And it all fell apart. That team just didn't, they couldn't really come to fruition. He gets hurt. They kind of adjust things. Kid figures figures it out and they turn into a pretty decent team. But there's no question that they would be a much better team with him healthy, with him playing the way that he was able to play. We might be able to, but he's just one of those guys, even though he's 26 and he won't even turn 27 until the end of the season. He's just one of those guys that I'm looking at him as if he sprains his ankle one more time and misses three weeks, I'm basically just kind of giving up on his career at that point, and everything else that you get is kind of just like icing on the cake. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it because he has so much talent, but you can reach a point. Andrew Bynum is a great comp, even though the -the off-the-court stuff is obviously different between the two of them. But that you reach a certain point, whereas if you're a team and you're thinking of players as investments to a point, that... As good as he is when he's on the court, if you can't guarantee that he's going to be on the court for more than, let's say, even less than half of the season, then that's just not worth a ton of money because you can't rely on that. You can't build a team around that. And at a position like center, the depth that you would need to compensate for that is really expensive, too. So it it would put teams in a difficult calculus, regardless of their situation with with the luxury tax and who knows where the nets are going to be then. Yeah, and and the important thing to think about is who's going to be getting a new contract in the summer of 2017 because I think it was Zach Lowe at Grantland had a really good piece about uh, about the implications of this massive new TV deal and that teams are looking at a pretty significant increase in salary cap level. So everybody wants to get extensions signed now. It's really tough to get it done with a lot of these guys, but teams want guys to be locked up early. And when you got a guy like Brooke Lopez who you want to lock him up soon – and you don't know if he's worth paying the money to because you don't know if he's going to be there to take that money. And, and you can't – I mean, if you if you were to sign a guy to a max right now for, what, like $17 million and he didn't really play for you that much anymore, two years from now it's not going to look so bad because the max contract for him would have been $26 million. But it's still a pretty significant risk of money, and it's a really tough decision of do you want to lock up a guy earlier not knowing what his long-term health situation is going to be. Now they at least had the luxury of him coming back this year and being healthy this year. But if he were to get if he were to get hurt again, they would have to seriously reconsider whether or not they want to extend him eventually. And the Nets are extremely fortunate because in most circumstances the other big issue is opportunity cost. That you're going to whether you do it directly or not, you're going to go in other directions with picks and things like that because you go, oh, you know, you wouldn't want to take another center because if Brook Lopez is healthy, he's your starting center. But they already have Plumlee, and so that's a nice benefit in the short term for the Nets that they don't have the same risk in that circumstance that a lot of other teams would if they had a shaky health for a center. Yeah, but, you know, it's his last guaranteed season. He has a player option the year after 
you have to assume he's going to take it because the next year he has a chance to have that new TV money. So you would assume that he's going to be in for two more years. So you have you you have to figure out if you want to sign him to an extension next year. There's not going to be a ton of time to really know if he's going to be long-term healthy, but you have to assume he is if he's able to play without any sort of minor injuries throughout the season. But you know the doctors know his body way better than we do, so they'll be able to give a much better recommendation to the GM and ownership. But you know, Lopez is one of these guys that his, con- his, ex- his next extension is getting really close, and he's in a very iffy state of affairs. And he's one of the toughest guys to decide whether or not you want to extend him. Because if he is healthy and he is the guy that he was before, you- you'd pay him the max. He's worth it. But you just he's just such a big question mark. And he's a seven-footer. And seven-footers, once they're having lower body injuries especially down by their feet and their ankles. It's like those can be chronic and plague them the rest of their careers. And they can even completely change who they are as a player the rest of their careers. Now, luckily for him, he's not really a, he's not really an aerial guy. He, he very rarely leaves his feet. And when he does leave his feet, he doesn't really go that far. So it's not like him losing lift and losing a height is really going to ruin his game, but it's still going to slow him down a little bit. It's still going to hurt him. It's still going to mess up his footwork a little bit. Yeah, and we've already seen with guys that exactly aren't as vertical with Yao Ming and Zajunit Sogauskas that lower body injuries, and I believe both of them had foot injuries, which Brook Lopez has had as well, mm-hmm. is that it not only does it affect how often you can be on the court, but it affects your rhythm, and it affects how many minutes you can play even when you're healthy. And all of those things are major impacts for a team when you're thinking about how much money you want to pay somebody. Yeah, I mean, the thing is that the track record for seven foot and above players that have foot injuries is as bad as you can imagine. It's one of the worst track records of all track records out there for no matter what it is. And if you're in that category, like he is now, if you're in that class where you're hanging out with Bill Walton and Kevin McHale and all these guys at the broken foot party, you're kind of, it's really hard to see you getting out of it completely. And all those guys had really short careers. Elgowskis is actually one of the rare medical marvels in modern history where his like his feet like fell off early in his career and he was able to come back and eventually even though he couldn't even get it probably because he was seven three and his wingspan could hug the entire arena. But Yao didn't I don't think he even made it ten years, right? Go did he go ten years or he got right around I it? think he I think he got right around there. Yeah. I think it was eight or nine. And Walton was pretty uh, close to he might have just gotten over it and Mikhail didn't get much further past it. You look at those guys now, all those guys have a limp now and if you're a player in the modern NBA and you see the way those guys walk, you got to be saying to yourself, I don't want to have that for the rest of my life. I mean, every time I see Bill Walton walk by or I see Kevin McHale walk by, it's it's tough. It's you got to imagine it's really tough living a life like that where you're limping everywhere. It's got to be brutal. It was the same thing when I saw Manu Bold a, a few like a few months before he died in that uh, car crash and he like could barely walk down the street. Now he's a unique situation because he was this gig- you know, like a skinny giant, so there's not a lot supporting him there. But it was you just could see it was so tough for him to physically get down the street. And if I'm Brooke Lopez, I'm looking at all the injuries I've had to my lower body, and I'm thinking, how much more can I take before I'm seriously compromising the rest of my life? And he's a, he's a really smart guy, so he's not one of these guys that's going to be like. I'm going to keep banging my head against the wall until I can't bang it anymore. He's one of those guys that's going to know when it's time to walk away. And, you, and you've got to worry if you're Brooklyn that if he gets one more injury to that foot, that could be the time if he thinks it's going to be a real significant rehab or the doctors tell him that there's a high risk of playing again. That's an excellent point. And I looked it up in Yao. He played parts of eight seasons, but that eighth season he played in was the season that he only played five games. Yeah. So it was really seven. Yeah. 
And when you think about the impact he had, that's pretty impre- pretty incredible that he really only played seven seasons and a lo- and three of those seven he played less than sixty games. So yeah, yeah. you can see how that can carry. I mean, Yao had we we can't get into this now, but Yao, well, I'd love to if you want to cut it from the podcast. But Yao had one of the most remarkable careers in NBA history because he's probably one of the most memorable players that ever came into the league. He's one of the most impactful players when you think about the way that he transformed the game on a global level. And also, if you look at the fact that it appears he's one of the most powerful people in all of China now, like he seems like it seems like he's one of the most powerful political actors in the world now. It's really fascinating. I mean, Yao's life is incredible, and I can't wait to read his autobiography, although my Mandarin isn't very good. So hopefully it's translated, but he um, or Cantonese, whatever he speaks. But his career was so short. He basically played five years, although I think one of those years he got hurt after the All-Star break. So he, he got the All-Star nod in that year. And then, like, a couple of those other years, he didn't even play, and he still made the All-Star team because fans uh, and don't really care. But so it's amazing how Yao is one of the most important players, at least in the last few decades, and maybe in league history, yet he barely even played in the league. Yeah, I, I, haven't, I haven't thought about it that much, but that's completely right. I think, I think that it's, it's definitely a unique legacy, and I remember it's one of the parts that makes Basketball's Hall of Fame kind of compelling, as much as I think it's kind of a silly idea to have it be a full sport Hall of Fame as opposed to a single league Hall of Fame, or even a pro Hall of Fame. But somebody and I said, you know, Yao's a first ballot Hall of Famer, regardless of almost how short his career was or anything else because of the entirety of his package in some ways like Matumbo, but in I would say Yao is even more just because of the scope of what he did even while he was playing, which I think is really impressive. Absolutely. I mean just uh, just the fact that Anta, the Chinese sneaker company, is now like one of the biggest sneaker companies and the sponsorship competition for NBA players and, and as far as a global market share. So it just shows that the Yao, the, the Yao was this mission that the NBA had, that they wanted to bring this guy over, make him a huge superstar, make him the face of the global game, and make him the tool for the global expansion that Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant set in motion. And even though Yao's career ultimately was basically a failure, because not because he wasn't a great player, because he was he was really, really, really good before he got hurt, and he looked like he was going to take like kind of the leap into being one of the all-time great centers, but. His, just his impact off the court was so much bigger for for the game off the court than it was on the court. And that mission that the NBA had of him transforming the way that the game is seen throughout the world and consumed throughout the world was such an incredible success that the NBA front, like the NBA's front office and Stern and all those guys probably look at Yao's career as one of the greatest successful careers for the NBA of all time. You're making me want to figure out a way to do some sort of like sports reporters thing where I give people like 10 minutes to talk about something. Now I need to figure out a way to make that happen. I'm trying to think about who would be the most fun people to have at Sloan. I mean, Stan Van was always fun, but he wasn't, Stan Van was anti the concept of analytics more so than, or even more anti analytics people than really the, the mechanics of it. You know, he agreed with a lot of so here's the thing. I think I look at it is that Stan's one of those guys that he's like a classic basketball expert, but he's a modern human being. He's an intelligent guy. So he's taken in all the tools that come that have been added to the trade. And he's one of these people that looks at all these people that yell out PERs and they judge a player based on their PER. I'm one of those people that I meant I don't like PER at all. I generally find to be PER isn't that accurate. And I think that while PER might be accurate in portraying what it's supposed to portray, 
I don't think it's a great overall view of how effective a player is, especially because it fails in a lot of ways to capture defensive effectiveness. And it doesn't really account for the fact that efficiency always isn't, isn't always the most important quality in a player. And it really depends on what your role is. But the point is, is that I think Van Gundy, he goes to that event and he, and he says the things that he says to try to get all these kids that are either data nerds or just kind of younger people getting into this that think that basketball is all about true shooting percentage. And he's trying to explain to them that the first thing you do with basketball is you will look at the play on tape and you, and you see what happened. Then you use the data to help you get a better, bigger picture understanding of what's happening. So that because it's I mean, data really is supposed to replace watching 100 hours of tape instead of watching 100 hours of tape. You can look at a few figures from SportView and get a get a much quicker, broader picture glimpse of what's going on and make a decision based off of that. But you still have to watch you still have to watch what actually happened because you need to see the way that one guy fought through a pick and the way that one guy was able to get an extra couple inches and get his hands more straight up in the air to deflect a shot. You know, the, all those little things. You know, where was a guy looking when he caught a pass Did that allow him to quickly get into his dribble, get into his move, or was he not, or were his feet not in the right position? So he was a step slower and that's why it didn't work. I mean, there's, well, data probably will eventually within the next 10 to 15 years in sport and all that will advance to the point that we'll be able to measure the microseconds of every single time a guy goes from catching to dribbling and moving. And that will probably eventually allow us to just play the entire game of basketball in zeros and ones in like some sort of Tron like field and everybody throwing discs at each other. And it's really just the movie Tron in the end. I think Van Gundy gets that that isn't what we want the end game of basketball to be. And so it's really important that he teaches all these people that are doing all these amazing things with numbers that they need to first look at the game itself and then use their numbers to help them understand the game rather than backwards. Yeah. I think there's a ton of truth to that. And I think the, the big point in that for me as somebody who likes the numbers but who doesn't live by them is the idea that part of the reason I love basketball is that it can't all be explained with numbers and it's actually to me part of the reason I've fallen a little bit out of love with baseball is that basketball by its very nature is a sport that is collaborative and that it's different every time and so you need to see how these pieces fit together you and I have talked before about I think about how excited we are to just see this Cleveland Cavaliers team play. Like, I'm just, as a basketball nerd, I'm just super pumped about it. It's not an issue of, oh, you know, of what what numbers are they going to put up? You know, what is Kevin Love's total rebounding percentage? It's what part of the court is he going to play? Are they going to put him in this place? How's that going to work with LeBron? Seeing guys play with confident teammates, we haven't seen Kyrie Irving or Kevin Love play with really good teammates for a long time, if ever. And so... I'm excited that there are things that we can estimate, but we can never know for sure. And people talk about that in terms of maybe March Madness, and that's part of the reason it's unpredictable. But for me, it's everything. You you can get a sense of it, and what I like about basketball is that you can predict things, but you can't know things, for the most part, except for knowing that Andre Bargnani sucks at basketball. But other than that... <laughs> well, that's just a constant there, fact throughout life. Yeah, that's it's, it's, it's a scientific law, more like gravity, as opposed to just a concept. And so I think that what makes basketball different than those sports, than a lot of the other sports, I would say soccer is in a similar realm with this, but you can't predict it. And while, and the other part of it is that teams can succeed in dramatically different ways, and that makes it fun too. And we could be seeing that with a team like Orlando. If Orlando works, I don't think it will. 
But if Orlando works, they're going to be succeeding in a dramatically different way than most teams have even ever succeeded in the NBA. Well, the thing is, Orlando's pretty far away, but and I looked at them last year thinking that Big Baby was going to be like an important key there, and they would really have a fascinating team with the Flalo and all that. But it's kind of weird how that didn't, how it's changed. The face of that team has really changed in the last year. Orlando's doing something that's really interesting, and I really love what they're trying to do. At first, I was really upset that they passed on Dante Exum, but from what I've seen and what I've seen of Aaron Gordon, I think they might have made the right call there. But they they've got this like team, so they're they're kind of I feel like they're building their team in a similar way to the way that Indiana did it, where they're just trying to put together all the pieces that they need to have a championship team without that like that great player to put it all around, and every other team in the league is trying to just gut everything, get rid of any sort of good value they have, and just get that one guy and then figure it out from there. And the Magic are looking at the rest of the league, and they're saying, okay, well, that's what everyone else is doing, so why would we try to compete with them, especially since all we got here is Disney World, so people, not even we couldn't even get Tim Duncan. We're not really going to get anybody. So let's just try to build in a different method. Let's try to put together guys like Vucevic, guys like Tobias Harris, all these really good uh, kind of like low-risk, high-reward talents that other teams are kind of just trying to cast off so they can make a big move. Let's put all those guys together, get more draft picks, just build and kind of go through all these trier and error things. Like Evan, they got Evan Fournier for like for nothing. I'm I'm still kind of shocked that they got him like basically for nothing because they were letting Aflalo go. They pretty much told the world, hey, we want to we want to dump Aaron Aflalo for nothing just so we can get rid of him. And every other team in the league was like, okay, we'll give you a second round pick. We don't want to give you anything for it. They got Evan Fournier, and I like Evan Fournier, and I think he's a pretty nice player. And they've got like a ton of Evan Fournier type guys all over the roster. And I mean, I, they, they committed too much money to Channing Fry and they committed too much money to Ben Gordon. But Gordon at least is a short term one. Channing Fry, you know, now that he's healthy again, you know that he's that guy that's going to be extremely valuable for you once you're winning three years from now. So they have all these guys. And plus, his contract's going to look pretty small once a new TV deal comes in. But so they've got a team that's just full of all these guys that you know can be valuable players supporting a good player or a great player or two. And now they just got to find their big kahuna, whether it's through the top of the draft. They figured we might as well be bad, but add lots of little good pieces so that once we get like that great big fish that's ready for us to take them in, then we're going to have that team ready to go right away. The thing that concerns me about them, and this is in some ways exacerbated by Channing Fry, is that I think that they need a real rim protector, and unless Aaron Gordon turns into Serge Ibaka, which I sincerely doubt, they're going to have that as a flaw. What I like about what they're doing is that it seems like their concept is, let's get the best player we can get, and the idea being that those players are more movable, and as you said, you know, it's a lot easier for them to acquire guys that way as opposed to signing them and using their cap space as free agents, the best way for them to use their cap space is as a bludgeon to get assets, which they've done a little bit, and I think that's part of the concept with Ben Gordon, though. I think that was poorly poorly done. The challenge with that is that even though you don't have to move any single player, you do eventually have to make a move because I feel like Oladipo, Alfred Payton, Harkless, Tobias Harris, like, if you put any two of those guys as two of the top, you know, five guys in, on a team in the next couple of years, you'll be all right. But if you put three or more of them, you're screwed. 
And so it's a challenge, but at the same point, why I'm so excited about it is it's a challenge that's doable. It's not a situation where they're in cap hell and they're going to have all that there. These are guys that also, for whatever reason, haven't hurt their value. So it's going to take a team, you know, a team that needs one of those guys, whoever it is, and and is willing to, you know, do the idea that they have they have what you want and they want what you have. But if they can make that happen, they they're not that far away. It's just that the moves are kind of hard to see, at least for me right now. Yeah, I mean, well, one good thing for them is that they're under the cap right now. Uh, Sham Sports has them at like fifty three million, so I don't know if that's going to change at all before the season, but they're, I mean, they're way under the cap and they, for next year, they'll have to make their tenders to Vucevic and Harris, both guys that they obviously want to keep and Kyle O'Quinn too, who will be like a 1.1 million or 1.2 million tender, but they're going to have like 30 million in cap space next year. So they're going to be major cap players if they want to be, they can take in guys and sign in trades. I mean, they have a lot of flexibility. So they're a team that, they have a lot of good assets that are that are on their payroll right now, but they're still going to have a ton of cap space and they're going to have a ton of draft picks. So they basically they're one of the most flexible teams in the league and they're one of the most attractive teams for doing trades with in the league. Agreed completely. The, their challenge is going to be whether they can play both sides of the coin at the same time or if they just <laughs> give up on free agency because cap space is an extremely valuable commodity, but you run into circumstances because everybody's working at the same time. And so you're kind of trying to do a bunch of things. So can they be wooing guys and trying to use the space or are they just going to go more firmly in one direction? And we're going to use it to acquire talent, not sign new talent and hopefully accrue assets in that way. And they can do that. You can do it either way. I've actually been disappointed with certain teams, uh, Oklahoma city early in the, when all their guys were on rookie deals, I think could have done more to acquire a couple more assets and their teams in the, in those kind of spots, but they're in the spot, as you mentioned, that they can do that. And the other factor in it is we don't know exactly what next off season is going to look like, but we do know that teams are going to want to have as much cap space as they can get. Even if the free agent pool isn't as good, let's say Kevin Love has an under the table, wink, wink, nudge, nudge deal with the Cavs and LeBron similarly. So that, there's still going to be talent, and uh, the thing that I harp on forever is uh, when a guy is an unrestricted free agent for the first time, there's no way of predicting what they're going to do. So you could see a guy say, I really want to play for the Knicks. I really want to play for blah, 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 and maybe the Nets even. And they're going to, and so those teams might need to move some guys, and they're going to be in a situation where they have very little leverage. And Orlando could be able to be one of the few teams that not only has the space, but has the realistic understanding of where they are to say, we're, we're willing to use this space to enable you to get your guy. Yeah, I mean, Orlando could trade for Amari Stoudemire for what uh, the corpse of Willie Green tomorrow if they wanted to. I mean, they, they, they have that flexibility. They could pretty much do whatever they want. Actually, actually, I think they would have to add a little bit more in there. But basically, they can make whatever moves that they want right now. And that makes them so attractive because they can get involved as a as a third team in trades and pick up whatever they want, basically, and they can come out ahead. And that's what they did in that Dwight Howard, Andrew Bynum trade. They've proven to be pretty shrewd at doing stuff like that. And they have the space still that they can continue to do that. So they can basically just kind of keep playing the field until they find what they want and pounce on it. And there's not a lot of teams that are in that position. I mean, there's very few of them that are really in that position right now. 
The thing that I want to say with Amare that isn't talked about enough, that I'm now writing for Middle Level Exceptional, which is a really, it's a fun site and it's allowed me to do a little bit of different stuff. And we were, there was a conversation that a couple of us were having a little while ago about the Sixers. And one thing that I honestly hadn't thought about too much, though I did know it, is that the way the CBA works at present, in terms of the salary cap floor, Amari Stoudemire, if he got traded midseason, counts for his full value for the team that gets him in terms of the floor. So that means that if at the day of the trade deadline, the Sixers trade for Amari Stoudemire, he probably puts them over the floor. So that means that, the, but he, they're still paying him only the portion of the season that he's actually on their team. So I'm convinced that if the Knicks aren't in a situation where they, you know, they need the guys that they're going to give up because they can't give up picks because they don't have them. So if they're in a situation where, you know, they don't need a Shumpert, let's say they're, you know, 10 games out of the playoffs or five games out of the playoffs, and they can dump Amari's contract, which I believe would put them um, significantly under the, the luxury tax, which then changes the repeater and everything else, I think that's a deal that's going to happen eventually unless the Knicks would lose too much by losing the talent in that trade. No, you're absolutely right, and I'm sure I'm sure Hinky and Phil have already agreed on this trade because it makes so much sense from both sides. And something that people forget a lot of the time is that your tax and your cap figure and all that isn't calculated till after your last game of the season. So you, a lot of teams go into the season with way under the floor just because they know that they have to make a move during the year to pull it to get above. So Philly's got a while to try to work and figure out what they're going to do to get above. And to be able to just get above in one trade and have that money disappear over the summer, it's kind of like a no-brainer for them, right? Especially if they can squeeze something out of New York that's valuable. Obviously, they want to get Tim Hardaway Jr., but they're probably not unless they give up something significant like one of their two great centers there or something like that. Or Michael Carter-Williams, maybe. But I don't think I would trade Carter-Williams for Hardaway. It's kind of I don't think don't really see much use in that for Philly unless they have another point guard they really feel can uh, kind of fill that role. But it seems like it's a no-brainer for those teams to do that, and it can work. So you might as well do it, right? And it's it's extremely beneficial for both sides. Yeah, the only downside for both teams in some ways is that the Knicks can't trade their draft pick, I believe, until after the draft because of the Stipian rule. And so, and obviously then that means it can't be a part of an Amari trade because you cannot have a trade that, you know, basically the equivalent of a player to be named later. You can't do that in the NBA in that long a time frame. You can do it for the week or two between the draft and the end of the moratorium, but you cannot do it for that. So but they can that won't happen. They can trade their 2021 and 2075 first round draft pick. Well, yeah, they can they can trade they can trade a ways away. Uh, I think it's seven years out, but yeah, you bring up a good point there. And the other part of it is that I think we're getting close to where the Sixers would actually just want to have existing talent. You know, that, that if the Knicks being limited in that way forces the Sixers to get players that are already on the Knicks roster, I'm guessing it's going to probably end up being Amon Shumpert. That's just my guess. I, I have a feeling like. That Phil will have to choose between them, and while I like him on Shumpert a lot, the addition of Calderon makes Shumpert more expendable than he would have been before. Well, the problem is the Sixers don't have enough guys to play on the court. Like I, I seriously have no idea what they're going to do this year. They're going to be so disgusting as a basketball team. What are they going to do? They don't have enough players that you could consider to be viable NBA players on the roster right now to actually play. I mean, Jarvis Bernardo might start shooting guard for all we know this year. It's going to be an absolute disaster. 
I would assume James Anderson is probably going to get a lot of run in shooting guard for them. But I'm looking through their roster, and you got Jason Richardson there. You have Alex Shved. I mean, there's just there's not a lot of players that are going to be able to play on that team. And the team they don't really have a lot of veteran leadership. They have Mamute, who is Joel Embiid's mentor, and he's a pretty solid veteran presence. B.J. Mullins or Byron Mullins, sorry, B.J. He's bounced around a thousand times in his career. There's not really, not really a positive veteran presence you see on that team that you think that guy is going to help these guys become a good team to develop. Not to mention, they don't really have any scores whatsoever. So uh, that team is probably looking at trying to make a move for some sort of veteran player, someone that can score. Because while you want to, while you want to get a good draft pick, you want to keep cap space open, all that kind of stuff. You still need the year to be a valuable year. You need that year to be a. You, know, you can't lose fans. You can't lose season ticket holders. You can't lose a year of development for your players because every year counts for developing these guys. And they need to make sure that they have the right got the right pieces in place, the right coaches in place to make sure that Nerlens Noel turns into a all around great power forward. To make sure that Carter Williams becomes a better point guard and a better shooter. To make sure that Alexi Shved is still a really good bench player, which I'm starting to question significantly. To make sure Casper Ware has the coolest name in basketball. I mean, there's all these really important things going on there that you look at this team and you say Philadelphia, they're going to be terrible this year. They're tanking again, but it's still a, they're still paying a few hundred million dollars or so or whatever it is that it costs a year to operate a basketball franchise, and they need to get as much value out of it as they can, just so they can at least make a profit off the top financially. But that so that this team continues to get better and they don't lose a season. Because you can lose games, but you can still gain in developing players. And the Celtics at least did that last year. They had a bunch of players that got better. The way that Kelly Olynyk really came around the second half of the season, that really vindicated a lot of what they did in the season. Yeah, there at least was some value in all that losing that the Celtics did last year. And, and of course, they got Marcus Smart and James Young. But they at least... They, they got something out of it. Brad Stevens established himself as one of the most lovable, desired coaches and really all of basketball. I mean, I had players from other teams telling me that they're hearing that Stevens is one of the most exciting and coolest coaches to play for in the league. Everybody loved him. There's a lot of positive things that came out of that season for them. And Philly needs to make sure that they do the same thing. And just looking at their roster right now, it's really hard to imagine that they're able to do that right now. The other component of it, and I agree with that, especially the discrepancy between them and the Celtics, the other part of it is whether they can establish an end date for when they're going to be bad, whether it's public or private. My instinct, and I talked about this a little bit with Arturo Goletti, is that I think they're going to be they're going to be building to have a respectable team next season, so 2015-2016. But if they're designing for another terrible season, guys like Michael Carter-Williams, it's going to be hard for them to deal with. They've been on, Michael Carter-Williams was once Syracuse. They were not as successful maybe as, and he wasn't there forever. You know, it's not one of those guys who was a four-year, a four-year dominant player in college, but it's hard for any guy to, to lose all the time. I was covering the Warriors when Stephen Curry started and when the Warriors lost a ton of games. And at one point during his first season, he, I, I think I think I asked him, might have been Ethan Sherwood Strauss, asked him about you know losing. And he said, I think I've lost as many games this season as I lost all of my years in college. And you can't build that sort of foundation of that. And while I think players can understand it if it's temporary, and I think that... Joel Embiid, in a lot of ways, really helps that because I think people know how good he is. But if it extends beyond this season, it's going to be hard not only to bring new players in, but to retain the players that you have once they have the choice of what they're going to do. Well, you know, the funny thing is, I think it was Russell Westbrook that said his rookie year that he lost more games that year than he did in his entire life. 
because he had basically gone undefeated in middle school and high school, and he played at UCLA for a year, and they were, I think they made the title game that year, right? So Russell Westbrook uh, was one of those guys that had the rudest of awakenings that year, and I think Michael Carter-Williams was in a fairly similar boat, too. But it's really hard to get used to losing, and it's really hard for guys coming out of college to get used to losing 82 games as opposed to, like, 34 to 40 games. You know, it's, it's a lot different when you're losing over that much longer of a season. I have to make my least favorite correction ever. UCLA did not make the title game that year. They lost oh. to Memphis. I was there. Really? <laughs> yeah, it was, I was there. It was That was not particularly fun. Yeah, that Memphis team, which may or may not have had a series of ineligible players. I won't get into that. <laughs> I, but that, that Memphis, the, the Kevin Love-Russell Westbrook team lost to Memphis and would have annihilated, I believe, yeah, it was Kansas. And then Mario Chalmers still in the NBA, yeah. hit that amazing shot and swung the national championship game. So was it the year that Collison was a freshman that they made the title game? Because I definitely remember Collison being there, but I thought Westbrook was also there and Collison was a year or two older. So that was the year Collison was, I believe Collison was a freshman, yeah. Uh-huh. And Westbrook was a freshman the second Final Four year, which is the year that UCLA lost to Florida in the Final Four as opposed to the title oh, game. Okay. It was the second year. Yeah, it was a series of really fun years that ended really, really, really badly. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, what what's fun about thinking about it for me from perspective of somebody who I was actually in law school for that last Final Four that we were talking about, but for the other ones, being a college student is I went to almost all those games and so many of the prominent players in the NBA now were a part of that in some way, shape, or form. Roy Hibbert and Jeff Green were on that Georgetown team that lost to Greg Oden, Mike Conley, Daquan Cook, and Ohio State, who then lost to the Florida team with Joachim Noah and everybody else, Al Horford and Corey Brewer and everybody else. And so the league is comprised of a lot of players that were in that and also that wasn't that wasn't a time when as I recall there was not an age limit so it's not like those players were were doing that and so you're thinking about how college I'm not even sure it established most of them as stars but that it played a role in all of that they did that and so to be able to be there I mean I I said for years that the best post player I saw early on in college was Channing Frye and now Channing Frye just got (laughs) crazy paid years and years and years later after dealing with a serious medical and medical issue. And he got surpassed incidentally by another guy we talked about, which is Brooke Lopez. And so to see those guys that in some ways are a part of our peer group that are now prominent in the league, it's a, it's a interesting experience, especially as both of us get to cover it. Yeah. The funny thing is you saying that Channing Frye was a great post player because he just made all that money almost exclusively for his perimeter play and not really at all for his interior play. So it's funny it's funny how these guys have to completely remake their game when they get to the to the league. Yeah, and Andre Guadala was a really an all around guy and I think in some ways what the Warriors thought they were getting from him in terms of his offense is what he did in college, but he turned into just he was such a huge part of the defense, but his offense wasn't there last year. We'll see if having better health will do that. But he was another guy who was fabulous in college. And then, of course, there are the guys who fall by the wayside. Like, the best guy I saw the entire time I was in college was Greg Oden. And we know how that turned out. Yeah. But the end, Brandon Roy was another one of those. But what I want, the other thing I want to ask you about is we talked early in the summer about the Celtics, and you, you and Andrew Perna were both on. And now Summer League has happened. Other things have happened, the draft and everything else. What players that are on the Celtics team right now do you think will be a part of this franchise four years from now? Brad Stevens, maybe. (laughs) There's not a single guy in this roster that I look at him and I say, 
that guy's definitely good. Maybe two years, there's a bunch of, there's a few of them, but there, there's not a single guy that they have right now that you think is an absolute mainstay has to be here four years from now. Smart could be that guy. I mean, he probably will just because his contract is going to make him there. Same thing with James Young. Um, but he, he does seem to be the best all-around talent that the Celtics have right now. You know, a few years ago, it seemed like Rondo was going to get a statue built for him and uh, outside of the stadium on Causeway Street. And then just the way the last two years have gone have been so bizarre, but yet so indicative of the guy that Rondo has always been rumored and reported to be. And he's everything from mercurial to genius to nice guy. I mean, he's everywhere. He's all that and everywhere in between. And he lives his life in a very uh, – he, he definitely lives his life a lot differently than most people would. He he cares about the people he cares about, and then he doesn't care about the people he doesn't care about. And he's hyper-competitive, and it seems like every single situation that he's ever in. And he's always very intense. And he reminds me of KG in a lot of ways in that regard. But the thing is, the Rondo basketball player that I saw even before he got hurt was like I, – I was saying before he got hurt that Rondo wasn't having a good year, and I was worried that Rondo plateaued. And that Rondo didn't really care like he used to. Because the big thing that happened with him was that, so he was this like incredible defender, all-world defender. He almost beat Dwight Howard out for Defensive Player of the Year one year. He was incredible. And then all of a sudden, Avery Bradley showed up. And Bradley was this unbelievable defender, even better in a lot of ways. And Rondo was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to stop playing defense and just play offense now. And Rondo's defense has been atrocious ever since then. He developed this thing. He was always this guy that wanted to go behind players and steal the ball. But he decided now that what he was going to do is do that same move, but do it more lazily. And then once the guy got by him, he was just going to watch the guy and watch the offense play five on four while he stands there waiting to run the fast break. And part of that is because Doc Rivers in his last year here tried to change the team over to a fast breaking team. It seemed mostly just to accommodate for Jeff Green. But it was also that I feel like Rondo just kind of gave up on defense because he knew he didn't have to do it for the team anymore. And he wanted to score a little bit more. He wanted to get even more assists. But overall, it really, really backfired for him. And seeing I mean, he was hurt when he came back last year, he's recovering from that injury. Guys are never quite the same for the first six months of play after they come back from a significant injury like that. So I really have no expectations positive or negative for him coming into the season. And we'll see who he's going to be for the rest of his career coming into this season. So it's way too early right now until we've actually seen him play in the regular season to determine who, who, how great is he going to be right now? And is he going to be worth the max? But Rondo, you really just don't feel like he's going to be here four years from now. Even if he were to resign now, I just don't, I just have this feeling that he's not going to be here longer than two or three years and it's eventually going to fall apart. But if he comes out there and he's as great as he was in 2012 when he was when he almost beat LeBron, I mean, there's no question he's a guy you throw him the max and you just do whatever you can to make him a great player. Because Rondo, at his best in the playoffs a few years back, was as good as any player in the entire league. But unfortunately for him, it only happens about 20 games a year and not 80 games a year like most other great players. Yeah, it just seems to me that he doesn't make sense with where the Celtics team is going just he doesn't fit very well with, with all that stuff. Thanks again for taking the time. Uh, yeah, I can't wait to listen to it, man. It was great talking to you again. Thanks again to Jared for taking the time to come on, and more importantly in this case, stay on, and so we could have that great conversation 
You can follow him, CLNS Radio, Celtics Blog. He also hosts the Garden Report postgame show, and his Twitter handle is CLNS underscore J-A-R-E-D-W-E-I-S-S. Really enjoyed having him on. Love having those more free-form conversations, and I, I liked where we went. I thought it was a lot of fun. I had really no idea. We were just talking, and it went in a lot of different directions. Still have two division off-season reviews, season previews to do. Those will be coming in the next few weeks, just working on getting guests and working on putting it together. And we'll hopefully have more freeform conversations like this. I love doing that. Basketball is something that I enjoy talking about with people, especially people who, who know it and love it like I do, and Jared is definitely in that group. So if you want to help make the show better, it, what, you can positive feedback, negative feedback. I read it, respond to it all. You can email daniel.larue at realgm.com. Or you can hit me up on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. I really do read it. I really do respond to it. And I appreciate that feedback because as we're getting close to starting a new basketball year, your input in terms of guests and everything else really does affect the product, and, and I appreciate it so much. So thank you so much for listening. Take care, and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset.